This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Chief Cook, Bottle Washer, Engineer, and a Lawn Maintenance Specialist, Mark Lautenschlager. And in studio with me today, I had to give myself some titles, Sam. In studio with me is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith, um, who himself him, himself is not a lawn engineering expert. No, I'm, no, not. I'm, I'm not, not either. I'm not either. I, I know how to I, I hire people to take care. Do you have a lawnmower? I have a lawnmower. Do you use it? I use it. Okay. Well, then so, you're, you're light years ahead of me. So for those who are in our church, if you know the Ingram family, yes. my family now lives in their old house before yes. Barb moved away. And they were masters at caring for their lawn. Uh-huh. And they had all these exotic plants. Notice I say had. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor am, Sam has killed the plants. I am not good at lawn care. Yeah, I'm not either. I have been living in the same house in Southwest Broward for 23 years. We bought the house 23 years ago. And ooh, maybe more than that. Well, 23 or 24 years ago. Okay. And uh, I don't have a lawnmower. I don't own... A shovel. <laughs> See? People laugh when they hear that. I don't own... I think there's a rake because someone gave me a rake when we moved in the house, but I've never really used it for anything. I don't own anything that you think of like a regular person would have for outdoors because I just have... I, I just... I never... I've always had a lawn service. That's... Yeah. You know... And and I'm okay with that. And yet somehow I'm a lawn maintenance expert in today's introduction. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that, that just shows you how worthless introductions are. But by way of introduction, we are coming now to Ephesians chapter 5. This is part of our series of podcasts in which we are supporting the, uh, the passages that we're studying right now in the message series One Body, One Mission at Rio Vista Church. I, I kind of look at it as we're doing the color commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do encourage you to both listen to the messages as well as these podcasts, but it's been great hearing from people that uh, are enjoying the podcasts and we enjoy doing them. And uh, hopefully this will be something we can continue doing for future series beyond one body, one mission. So we're coming now to Ephesians chapter five, which how would you characterize? I mean, obviously somebody put a, sh- a chapter break in here for a reason mm-hmm. when they were not mind you folks. One more reminder. Um, when Paul wrote this, he didn't write this letter, verse 1, verse 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. That was put in later on by people who were trying to break it up so that we could find things to read them together. It was done for our convenience, but there was some, some thought put into it. So they, they put these chapter breaks in where they thought they fit. And as mm-hmm. I was looking at this, I'm like, it feels like there's another big shift here again. Mm-hmm. He gets a lot more specific. So he gets into yes. the nitty-gritty of human behavior. That's always helpful when... And dividing sections when you see a therefore, because it's like, okay, he's, he is summing up everything that he said before that, and he's reaching a conclusion that he's about to launch into something else. Yeah, correct. And so chapter five begins, therefore, uh, be imitators of God as beloved children. So when you look at, at chapter four, it's like Paul is saying, okay, therefore, in light of all that stuff, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so he's summarizing all of that. So remember when it said, walk in a manner worthy of your calling and don't walk as the Gentiles. Another way of summarizing that entire thing is 
be imitators of God. Remember, you're to forgive as Christ forgave you. You're mm-hmm. gentle because he was gentle. You're kind because he was kind. You're right. tender because he was tender. So be imitators of God. And you can look at all the attributes that you find in Ephesians 4 and the calling that is placed on us. Mm-hmm. And it's a description of our Savior, right? We're to be humble, gentle, patient. This is quite a list. <laughs> Forbearing, unified, peaceful, spiritually gifted, spiritually mature, filled with God, resolute in mission, truthful, renewed daily, righteous, holy, peacemaking, generous, encouraging, kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. In other words, be imitators of God. Right. Because that's who he is. And one of the things, when we were talking about this uh, before we came on air here or turn the mics on to record, uh, I was saying that Paul has always used uh, imitation or imitators as sort of the heart of discipleship. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Philippians 3.17 where he says, be imitators or, or, or follow me as I follow Christ. Basically, imitate him as he's imitating Christ. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that imitation is um, really at the heart of discipleship, meaning that if I want to follow Jesus, how do, well, you want to be like him. You know, you want to imitate him. So when he opens up with being imitators of God, but then he says, as dear children, Mm -hmm. is that like our kids imitate us? Is that what you're thinking he's getting at there? Well, one of the things that Paul does, um, he he says, be imitators of God. Now, if I just came up to you and and I said, hey, be an imitator of God, that's, oh my goodness, like, (laughs) that's a tall order. Would you like me to start by creating the world? Yeah. I don't think I can do that. It's too much. And so Paul... Put, you know, comma, as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And so, he, so he gives you a bite-sized piece. Oh, man, but that's, <laughs> that's the way he phrases the whole of sure. the gospel life, right? And so we've talked about in the book of Ephesians, he spends the first three chapters telling you who you are. Right. Right? Right. Who you are in Christ positionally, that you're loved, that you're chosen, that you're adopted, that you have all of these realities, that you're raised and seated in the heavenly realms. And he gives you all the security of who you are in Christ, and then he pivots and says, okay, now this is what you do about it. And so even here when he says, be imitators of God, it's like he wants to emphasize as beloved children. And so if you, if you just throw out, hey, be imitators of God, but you forget that you're beloved children— you're going to dive into legalism, right? Be right. imitators of God. I'm going to, I mean, it's like, oh my goodness, I've got, to, I've got to be perfect. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And if you walk around with only be imitators of God, it's too much. You'll invariably fail. There's going to be seasons where religion is nothing but slavery, and it's going to corrupt your walk with God. But if you forget, you say, you know what? I'm just, I'm just beloved children, and I'm not going to take, you know, be imitators of God. Then you run off the other direction to where you're licentious. You just you do anything, and you don't care that you're doing the things that God hates. You want the throne of your life. You want to be a beloved child, but you don't care about imitating him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, don't under, you haven't come to grips with the fact that God's hatred for sin put his son on a cross because he loves you. Um, you don't understand the gravity of your sin. But the right motive, the right way to live in the the Christian walk is to put those two together. Be imitators of God. Why? Because you're his beloved child, right? Right. So one, it changes your motive from obligation to love. I want to love him because he's my father, because he's good to me, because he provides. But on the other end of that, you're secure. Mm -hmm. 
He's your father. So if you fail to imitate him, which you will, you're his child. So you're safe. There's grace. There's freedom. And so you've got to put those yeah. both together. If you don't, you either, get, you either get legalism, you get licentiousness. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. This is rooted in love. Yeah. And I mean, he, and he says, as dear children, not as loyal subjects. Right. Exactly. Not as my, as my beloved minions, <laughs> yes. be imitators of God. <laughs> minions. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. Yeah. He says, as dear children. So, yeah, that is true. That identification as children both is one that is a guarantee of grace and forgiveness. It sets a, uh, a stage for saying, you know what? We understand that you're not going to be God, obviously, mm-hmm. just like your children aren't going to be you. You know, your children are going to do, I have this mental image of, uh, of you out there with the lawnmower and Nathan out there with like a little toy, a toy, one, yeah. toy lawnmower, you know, mowing the grass also because <laughs> he's, you know, I'm helping dad, I'm yeah. helping dad, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. And, and, and to some extent, it's kind of that way, you know, mm-hmm. God's got the big ride on lawnmower and I got the little plastic <laughs> bubble mower over here and I'm like, I'm helping God, I'm helping, <laughs> yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, people call my son Caleb Mini-Me. Because he's so much like me. Yes. And that's true. You know, if your children look up to you, they become like you. Uh, yeah, I went with Nathan for the plastic mower because yeah. I was like, Caleb's a little beyond that. <laughs> Caleb's was, out there with the plastic mower. He's 11. There might be some problems yeah, yeah, there. I was, I, was giving Caleb, you know, <laughs> I was giving Caleb some grace there. Like, he's old enough that he'd probably be trusted with the real mower, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's one of, the, one of the biblical truths is that you will become like whatever you worship. Mm-hmm. And you look at the ancient world, this is just fascinating to me, but think of ancient Athens, and there they worship the goddess Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom and right. warfare. It's not an accident that Athens then becomes the birthplace of philosophy with an imperial navy. Or you go to a place like Corinth, where they worship Aphrodite, who's the goddess of erotic love. It's not surprising that then Corinth is this <laughs> bed yeah, of so. sexual perversion and hedonism and all this other stuff. Yeah. People become what they worship. And so if you hold Christ up as the highest, loftiest, most valuable person or thing in your life, you will become like him. Mm. Hmm. So verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I mean, the first thing that jumped out at me when I came to this verse was a fragrant offering. (laughs) (laughs) Um, this obviously must be some Old Testament uh, symbolism. So I would just say, Sam, what do you think? So it's actually, it actually <laughs> is, actually. Um, if you go in the book of Exodus, when God is talking to Moses about how to set up the tabernacle, uh, this is in Exodus chapter 30, he says he's going to have perfume. He wants a fragrant aroma there. And he says this, hang with me. He says, take sweet spices with pure frankincense, which goes into perfume of equal part, And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small, in other words, pulverize it, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle tent where God dwells, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord." Whoever makes any like it to use this perfume shall be cut off from his people. And you go, whoa. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so, so God is saying, okay. Wow. <laughs> it, it's kind of like, okay, well, that's a weird one. We read right past that. It and go, is. Whatever. But this is what God's getting after here. He's saying, I want, when you come to worship me, I want to capture every single one of your senses, your sight, your ears, 
the smell. I want it all to remind you of me. Hmm. Everything is just this exclusive thing. And so they say that smell is actually of all your five senses. It's the one that's closest tied to your memory because you're the smell part of your brain is the same part of your brain that's memory. Like, you smell something, it takes you right back somewhere. I was just about to say, there's a place that I used to go to, this little restaurant or whatever, where I could smell the baked goods, the crusts and stuff being baked, that was unique. Something was unique about it, just the way that it got, the way that the ventilation system was. And as you were saying that, I'm thinking, I can still remember what that place smelled like 40 yeah. years ago, and if I smelled anything like it today, I would immediately yep. be 17 years old again. You'd, you'd be right back there. And so the idea was, when you you came to worship the Lord at the tabernacle when you smelled those things, sure. all those memories, same like you're talking about, all the memories of your previous experiences worshiping him flooded back into your brain. It became this really solemn, beautiful thing that reminds you of him. And so what he says is, don't you dare take that perfume and go make counterfeits of that with lesser experiences. I don't, I want people to associate that with me. This smell is holy. So get this. So in order to, to get that smell, you had to go to the tabernacle. You had to go to the temple. And now Paul, what does he say? You go out with that aroma. When people come around you, there's going to be something about the aroma that you give off. Now, it's not a real aroma. It's not like a body spray or something. Right. But the aroma that you give off and the way that you live, what does it make people think of? It makes people think of the Lord. And <laughs> you'd better make that aroma pure and holy. Don't defile it. Don't put contaminants in it and the way that you live. When people come across you, I want them to remember the Lord. Hmm. That's that's the idea here, and in, and in Roman society, perfume was a big deal. I came across this is nerd alert. <laughs> I guess I guess by now this is double nerd alert. Yes, <laughs> but anyway, Rome imported six million pounds of frankincense and over a million pounds of myrrh. Those are ingredients in perfume. They imported that much every year, and we still have uh, recipes for perfume that were recorded by Pliny the Elder. Um, and so there were particular cults that made specific perfumes to worshiping specific gods to where when you smelled those people, you knew who they worshiped. You knew what cult they were in. And so if you go out with this unique aroma of Christ and the way that he is, the way that you live is going to remind people of the God you serve. Hmm. When you were talking about that, I was thinking about the passage of Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and a couple of verses after that where Paul writes, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. I think that's interesting, the fragrance yeah. of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. I knew that there had been rules about incense and stuff in the Mosaic Law. I didn't know they were that specific. Yeah. Um, I didn't know they were that specific. That's very interesting. Because there are in modern churches, I mean, not but meaning like not ancient Israel, but some of the more Orthodox churches, they'll have incense and stuff mm-hmm. as part of the church 
And I, I, saw, I wonder if that's a connection back to that, if they're, well, if they're doing that, with that or if there's a... So there's a part of it that that's the smell of incense. You, you're drawn right back to church, uh-huh. right? Right. But the other side of that is incense burns and it goes up. And the idea was it was symbolic of prayer when you burned incense, oh, like it was going okay. up to the heavens. Huh. So David in the psalm somewhere compares incense to prayers. Um, but in this, like when it's talking about perfume and it's comparing us to this pleasing aroma, uh, the, the idea is, you know, you're being pulverized. Like in your life, you're giving up your identity as whatever plant, you know, frankincense or myrrh. You're giving up your life. You're being kind of crushed. Why? So that your life points people to the memory and the knowledge of God. And so it's like we're we're living sacrifices to go back to Romans 12 that we talked about last week. We're living sacrifices and our lives are giving off this aroma that are bringing people to the knowledge of God. Hmm. And that smell will always remind people of God. And so like in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 when it says that the smell is actually, you know, bringing the knowledge of of God. It's the knowledge but it's among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. perishing. Right. You know, I remember one death and the other life. I remember before I'd surrendered my life to Christ, I worked alongside of somebody who is like the Uber Christian, the Ned Flanders type of Christian. <laughs> and he <laughs> you know, G golly, you know. <clears throat> and he never ever condemned or spoke down to me or judged me, but he lived an upright life and he loved his wife and he was amazingly charitable and kind to everybody. But did he actually say hi diddly ho neighbor? <laughs> he may as well have. He may, as well he, have. Okay. he may have had something even more corny. Okay. Um but just the way he lived made me feel convicted for the way I looked, huh. even though he never ever spoke down to me. Mm. I looked at him and I knew I owed God more with my life. I knew I was falling short just by watching how beautiful his life was. Hmm. Hmm. You know, there were people that I, that I knew, uh, you know, pretty early on in, after becoming a Christian that, uh, kind of the same sort of thing. It's like, we always had this sense that just when you were around their homes and you saw how they interacted, husbands and wives interacted with their kids, um, you found yourself, and this is and this is at a time when life was a lot less chaotic than it is today. Mm-hmm. But you found yourself thinking, man, you know, there's something different about this place. There's something different about the way that they talk to their kids. Yeah. There's something different about the way they talk to their wife. And you wanted to elevate your behavior, not you because, to get to that and level. it wasn't because they were prudish. Yeah. Like he, I never, no, 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 not at all. But I would wait when we would go out to the to Chili's or whatever after work or whatever. I would wait for him to leave before I got plowed. You know, like, because I didn't want to do that in front of him. Oh, my goodness. Well, so um, verse three, we're going off the rails. <clears throat> no. Well, I mean. But, and one of the other things I want to note. Okay. Sorry. Here, didn't mean to go too fast. In, in verse two, you also have Paul bringing up the walk again. Remember right. in, in chapter four. Yes. You had walk in a manner worthy, worthy of that which you've been called. And then you have, you know, do not walk as the Gentiles do. And now here he's coming back to it. Walk in love. So he's kind of summarizing. Walk in love as Christ loved us. There it is again. We love because he loved. We love in the manner that he loved and gave himself up for us. And that's. You know, that's that's a bigger command, by the way, than love your neighbor as yourself. This is 
love as I have loved you. That mm-hmm. means you, you love sacrificially. You go above and beyond. You're willing to endure great cost to yourself hmm. to lift someone else up. So it's not just, hey, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you as I love me. No, no, no. I'm going to love you in a way that exalts you even if it costs me. Hmm. There's a, a Stephen Curtis Chapman song from a few years ago, um, because I am that old, uh, that was called Doing the Walk. And it was a, it was just a very cool song because he started off singing about his, you know, Grandpa Rudd and all these different yeah. characters in it, and how um, that their ordinary lives were extraordinary because they were walking with the Lord because they were doing the walk. It's something that um, you know people being so hungry these days for meaning and for purpose. What we're suggesting, what Paul's suggesting here is that your ordinary life can be one that is absolutely purposeful and infused with Mm -hmm. meaning in the very ordinary things that we do when we are doing them, when we're walking as Christ would have us walk, when we're we're walking in love. The opportunity that we have, like your Ned Flanders Mm -hmm. cellmate there in in whatever... Cellmate. Whatever whatever (laughs) cubicles or whatever place you were working... um, it, it, it's true, though, because that's a situation where his life was meaningful as he was just doing ordinary things because his life was being used as a testimony to you. And that's the same kind of thing that is offered to all of us. If you want, you know, if it's the very ordinariness of your life that drives you crazy, like, mm-hmm. God, I've got no reason to be here. God's like, you have every reason to be here. It's Second Corinthians again, where we talked about the aroma, mm-hmm. but where it says that you are letters from Christ to the world. So some people will never step foot in a church. They'll never crack open a Bible. You are the gospel they're called to read. Yeah, that's another one of those uh, pastorisms from 30, 40 years ago. You're the only Bible some people will ever read. And I'm like, that's not necessarily untrue. No, it's not. (laughs) You know, there are some people that will... Just hopefully we're good translations. Yes, hopefully we are. (laughs) So verse 3 Uh, Is it okay to go to verse 3 now? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And so verse 3 there begins with the word but, which... I mean, that again, that suggests that Paul is going to give us a contrast between what we just read, which was walk in love as a fragrant, and 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 now he's saying that the opposite of that is this sexual immorality and purity and covetousness. Yeah. And that and that those qualities were just rampant all over the Roman world. Uh-huh. We still have them today, but in the city of Ephesus, which would surely would have received this letter, the book of Ephesians, they worshiped Artemis, which we've talked about before. She was the goddess of fertility and reproduction and crops. And so they had all these statuettes that have been found of Artemis that show her, and she's covered with dozens of female breasts, a very, very sexualized. The worship of Artemis included orgies and everything about the identity of the Ephesians and so many other cities of the ancient world at that time were totally hypersexualized. It was it was that way in Corinth, it was that way in Pompeii. Everything was about accumulating. It was all about self-satisfaction, self-gratification. And so, I mean, like we talked about the definition of sin being this inward bent. Mm-hmm. Everything was like that to the nth degree. In this region of the world. And so yeah. Paul is coming and he's like, hold on a minute. That sexual immorality, all that impurity, the covetousness, that can't be named 
among you, my mm. people, specifically talking to his church. And then he says, as is proper among the saints, and the word proper there, we think, oh, here we go, proper. You know, it, it gives this idea of somebody who's prudish. Mm-hmm. But that word there is literally fitting. It's like, remember how the last chapter has talked about how we're to put on Christ and take off the old self? Mm-hmm. He's saying, if you're still doing all this, you're in a covering. You're showing the world a picture of what Christianity means that doesn't fit. It, it's not the right uniform. And so you're miscommunicating to the world what it means to be a Christian. This whole the, chapter five starts being an imitator of God. What does that mean? It means that you look like him to the rest of the world. Right. This is saying those behaviors don't look like him mm-hmm. because all of those behaviors are sourced by this desire to feed me right now. Hmm. Well, how does Christ live? He sacrifices. He's patient. He's playing the long game. He's looking at eternity. He lays himself aside. He sacrifices his own immediate desires for the sake of God's will, right? He sacrifices his comfort for us. What is sexual immorality and covetousness and impurity? It's all saying, I need what I need right now, and I don't care what it does to anyone else around me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make everything else impure. I'm going to degrade everything else so that I can get a moment's pleasure. And then he goes on to say that neither filthiness nor foolish talking, coarse jesting, all these things, which again, he says are not fitting. Basically it's not these, these things aren't proper or fitting among them. Um, but he, and he gives us a contrast right there. Like the verse three, it's really kind of, it's kind of referring back to verses one and two mm-hmm. walk in love. Okay. This is the opposite of that. But within verse four, the opposite of the filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting is thanks. You should be giving thanks. Your speech should be that of being thankful. Um, and I, and I think that Thanksgiving actually applies to, to all of, of three and four of what we just read. I, I, it's kind of like where Paul comes to when he says, look, I've given up everything to follow after Jesus, right? I, I gave up my career. I was on track to be powerful. I had wealth. I had you know Roman citizenship. I had all these things, and I would lay them down and consider them as rubbish because I have Christ, right? Mm-hmm. So what's driving that? Why can he walk away from all those other behaviors? It's because he is so totally satisfied and thankful for what he has mm-hmm. that it makes all the other stuff look like rubbish by comparison. He's, he's praising the Lord. He's worshiping him with thanks, which then makes the impurity and all the other things like, I, I don't want that anymore. I think one of the principal characteristics of, of Thanksgiving, though, of being thankful is that, like we talk about our American holiday of Thanksgiving. What's the point of that? The point of that is to remember are the bounties and the blessings that we have. So there's an mm-hmm. idea of yeah. remembrance that's involved in Thanksgiving. It's if, if I tell you to be thankful for something, it's inferring that you're going to think about that thing that I'm asking you to be thankful for. So if, if we're saying, you know, that they should be, that their speech should be filled with thanksgiving, if that seems odd, what it's really saying is that what should be in your mind at all times is what God's done for you. Mm-hmm. That's how you are thankful at all times is to keep in the forefront of your mind what God has done for you. Yeah. That sounds to some extent impractical because people are like, oh, I'm supposed to walk around all day just quoting scripture to myself. Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not a bad option. Um, but when I was a kid, if I was, when I was getting ready to go out, every so often my, my mother would say things to me like, hey, remember who you are. 
you know, this this idea that don't embarrass the family kind of thing. And there was an expectation that you would remember who you were, that you would remember the family that you were a part of and that you would not. And I'm like, well, what, I'm supposed to be walking around all the time reciting my last name to myself. No, 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 that's not what they're saying. But what they're saying is that everything that you do, every place you go, every activity you can get is a series of small decisions. I'm making a small, de- am I going to be on time? Am I going to be late? How am I going to dress? What am I going to say when I get there? What are, mm-hmm. All of these decisions. And if your process of making decisions has that flavor of, and what would somebody of my, you know, what would my family do? What, what brings honor kind of thing? So what we're suggesting is that the, that your natural way of living doesn't change. But what does change is that as you make these series of small decisions that are essentially any activity that you're involved in, that all of those decisions are now made from the perspective of whose am I? What family am I, am I a part of? Mm-hmm. Remember who you are. Yeah. And there's a part of this, you know, when, I'm trying to think, how would I have read this, you know, 20 years ago and before I was, uh, you know, a Christian? And I would honestly, I would say that I would come across this and I'd go, man, here's another example of where Christianity is taking something away that I want. Killing all the fun in the room. Killing all the fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, so there's two parts of this. One, it's enough that God said it. Right, he's my creator. I owe him everything. He could just say, "Don't do it," and it should be enough. Mm-hmm. But the greater reality behind that is, when he says not to be consumed with sexual immorality, it's because sex is this really, really beautiful thing that God really loves. He created it. He gave it to us, and he knows that it is most beautiful when it's in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. And that is where it's going to be beautiful. And let me explain why. When Laura and I got married, we were talking about, you know, what this was going to look like. And Laura let me read all of her journals from when she was young. And, you know, she, <laughs> when she was in eighth grade, she was praying for her future husband, <laughs> you know, and, you know, asking God to help, you know, protect her purity in her heart and that God would protect her future husband. And, and, and she picked you. <laughs> <laughs> she gave up, apparently. apparently. Oh, my <laughs> but, goodness. But anyway, so as we're going into marriage, this really sober thing, like this, you know, the beauty of marriage is that I have the closest representation of what Christ offers me mm-hmm. and another person. I'm going to go and I'm going to stand in front of Laura with all of my shame, all of my guilt, all my failure, scars, you know, past, and I've got someone who looks at me and says, I'm going to love you no matter what. You are safe with me even when you fail. I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And it's this beautiful sanctuary in this world where I have another human being that I'm just safe with. Yeah. And I came into this marriage, and sexuality is supposed to be a part of that. And she comes into this marriage with no mental Rolodex of any other experience that she'd ever had. No other sights, no other emotions with that. And so I'm it. Like, I am the only person that she has in her mind to compare any sexual experience to. I could not give her that. Mm -hmm. And so when we came into the marriage, she's got the insecurity of knowing that I've got a past where I'm pulling you know, other experiences into, and it, there's a really, really beautiful thing when that is protected. Mm-hmm. 
and it's given solely to another person. It gives security. It increases your intimacy. There's increased safety in it, increased beauty. And that's the way sexuality is intended. But when we run around and we give ourselves sexually to every, you know, website and other person and and everything else what it does is it actually takes something that's really sacred and powerful and slowly but surely it begins to desensitize it right and it makes it cheaper to where when you get to the real thing and what it's really intended for you have a warped view of it and i can tell you as a pastor i have counseled couples where men have come into the relationship with a long history of sexual immorality or pornography and they get to the marriage, and it really damages sure. their sex life sure. because they have warped their understanding of what it's supposed to be right. to where when they get to the real sacred thing, they've got to work through and get, find some spiritual <laughs> repair. And I think the thing that you hear most often from somebody who's in that position where they've had this long history of it, they're like, like it's no big deal. It's just sex. Mm-hmm. You think about that for a second. <laughs> it's no big deal. That tells you the whole problem right there yeah. is that it's become just something that you do on a Saturday afternoon, mm-hmm. something that if you're lucky happens tonight, that kind of thing. And it has taken away everything that is powerful about it apart from your physical gratification for the moment. The fact that this is something that, that is a, it's a, it's binding that it's, it creates this, this intimacy. It creates this feeling of, you're as close to that person with it to one flesh. I mean, that's what it feels like. It's like that's, that's how close you are with that person. But think of the power that God has entrusted into that action. Sure. It is the, when two people come together in sex, God has vested that action with the power to create mm-hmm. an immortal creature that is the fusion of you two. Hmm. It is so sacred. It's like, you know, God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. You, you too, with, you know, God's consent and sovereignty, have created an immortal creature that's the fusion of you two. This is a tremendously powerful, sacred thing that shouldn't be treated as cheap. Yeah. And God is calling on us to know better. So verse 5 says, uh, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. At first read, that's some pretty harsh <laughs> that's stuff. terrifying. Because they're, you know, I, I mean, is this... What does it say? So like if, if you've ever been sexually immoral or impure, you've got no inheritance? Obviously, that can't be what it's saying. So you, so you notice there's, there's kind of a repetition. So in verse 3, it, it listed sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And here it's saying everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. And the English does not communicate this well. So in, in verse 3, it's talking about the action. It's talking about the behavior. But in the Greek, these are actual labels that you would call somebody. So like where it says, who is sexually immoral, that's literally, it's one word. It's um, pornos. It's like some, a, a pervert or sexually immoral person. And okay. it's a label. It's an identity. Mm-hmm. And so Paul is moving and he's saying, okay, don't do the behaviors. But here's the deal. If you take on this identity of somebody who is... Uh, pornos, the sexually immoral person that I, that that brands you, it labels you, it's who you are. 
then you are not going to receive an inheritance from God. Or if, if you're someone who's impure, the word there is literally, it's, it's fascinating, it's akathartas, which is where we get the word cathartic, like what does cathartic mean? It means cleansing. It's like yeah. purging. Yeah. It, it's, it's cathartic oh, experience. So like, cathartic. Oh, yeah, I, got, I got it out of me. So it's, you know, if you are, so it's ah, cathartos, which means not. Which would be the opposite of it. Right? Okay. So it's just every in, unclean thought, every impure impulse just goes in you and sits and you never repent of it. It never gets filtered out of you. You just remain impure. Um, and that's who you are. Or uh, somebody who's covetous. Somebody who's just consumed with ach- achieving more stuff. And the idea here is, is the difference. Like, uh, let's say I quit smoking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I quit smoking, you know, which is true, by the way, I still, to this day, occasionally will have dreams about smoking. Um, I still feel the addiction, right? I still, there's mm-hmm. days where I want to to pick up some cigarettes and smoke or go out on my back porch. If I did that, that does not make me this label. Like if I say, oh, you know, these made me sick and I threw them away, you'd be right to say that I struggled with an addiction. You'd be right to say, you know, that, hey, he smoked. You'd be wrong if, you know, I'd quit and walked away from it to call me a smoker, right? Because I've, I've, I'm no longer that label. I've walked away from those things. I might still struggle with them, but I'm not the label anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm fighting against them. What's being driven at here is that if you have God's spirit within you, mm-hmm. these are not behaviors that you're going to be able to engage in without some opposition within mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah, there's going to be a struggle. There is going to be a struggle. And the guy who writes this letter, so just to give some people some comfort, I take great comfort in the fact that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, also wrote, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I know I ought not to do, I do. Like, he faced this battle, this war that was going on in him between the flesh and the spirit, and he failed a bunch. But thankfully, like what this passage is getting at is it's, you know, when it talks about those who are going to inherit the kingdom, right? It's not talking about people who failed at these things. It's talking about people who are owned or defined by these things. Mm -hmm. And that's why when Paul comes, he can say, man, I fail, but I am a prisoner in Christ. I am his. I'm owned by him, not these things. So the message that we want people to understand as we're talking through this and is that, um, all of us obviously fail at at lots lots <laughs> all the time <laughs> um, but there's a difference between the failure the recognition of the failure the I'm gonna get back up I'm gonna press forward again and there's a difference between that and this thing of well you know pfft, who cares it's no mm-hmm. big deal and so I think that there's there's a uh, an idea of practicing sin or continuing sin versus I have, you know, yes, we all still sin. We all still do something, do things wrong. We're not going to be perfect as long as we inhabit these bodies of flesh and live in this world. We're not going to be perfect. But there is a difference between you are caught up in something or you, or there's something that happens versus something that is the defining characteristic of your life. And so what we're talking about here is patterns. If, if you're somebody that's like, you know, I have my moments where I have these impure thoughts or I have these, I struggle with covetousness when I see other people that are doing much better than me and I I wish that I had what they had or something like that. But if you're recognizing that, if you're aware of that and if you are engaged in the struggle against that, 
you should take heart from that because that is, in fact, a sign mm-hmm. that God's spirit is at work in you. You shouldn't be discouraged by it. You should be encouraged by it. Absolutely. So. so verse 7, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Seems like this passage has a lot to do with light. (laughs) So it's kind of fascinating. What Paul is doing here is he's saying that our our journey through this life in Christ is a lot like the very first act of creation that God does on day one when he says, let there be light, right? If you were to open up your Bibles to Genesis— and you come to that very first day of creation that says that darkness has, it, it covers everything. There's just darkness everywhere. And the spirit moves, is hovering over the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And we're told that he separates, he saw that the light was good, and he separates the light from the darkness. And that's the first day. Mm-hmm. And everything is good, right? And so when he's talking about our conversion, he's saying, you know what your conversion is like? Is the, it, it mirrors the very first day of creation. Because what? You were darkness. Mm-hmm. But then what happens? The spirit moves in your life. The mm-hmm. word is spoken. Mm-hmm. And you become children of light. And so then you try and discern what's pleasing to the Lord. And you take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Remember, in the first day, he separates the light from the darkness. So you have no part of darkness. Instead, the light presses into the darkness and conquers it. It exposes it. It brings the things that were ugly and lifeless and brings them to life and makes them beautiful, right? And so that's why, you know, he's talking about light. And then he closes and he, he, he takes a left turn, seemingly, but it's not a left turn. And he starts pointing to the resurrection. He says, therefore, it says, and he quotes Old Testament passages, kind of a compilation of them, and he says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In other words, who is Christ? He calls himself the light of the world. And so what is he doing? He's coming into your heart, into that darkness, and he's overwhelming it with his light so that now you shine out into the world. You're separated from darkness. Mm -hmm. He has made you alive and resurrection power has overtaken your life. That's this whole, this whole passage is telling you God's very first day of creation foreshadowed what Christ is doing in you. Hmm. When I was reading over these verses, what stuck out to me was fruit. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Mm-hmm. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This idea that, that one of the things that the light is going to expose in us is it's going to expose a lack of fruit or unfruitfulness. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting to me, too, that how many times things are tied, in terms of our Christian walk, are tied to this image of fruit. You know, Jesus talks about he's the true vine, we're the branches, mm-hmm. and that we will bear fruit, and that he'll prune us so that we can bear more fruit. Mm-hmm. So the, the Christian life, the Christian walk, is to be one in which you produce fruit. Now, as I've heard Tom say, sometimes it's a little bitty shriveled up raisin, <laughs> but there will be fruit. 
And and I guess one of the things I'm kind of looking at as we go through some of this, because some of this language is, is for, for some people that maybe haven't heard these verses before, they're going to be a little bit shocked by some of this. They'll be like, wow, I've had some impure thoughts. Wow, I've told some coarse jokes. Wow. Mm-hmm. I've, but I want to give you some tent poles here to take confidence from. And one of them is that the Christian life is going to be a life of fruit bearing. When you see things that you're like, wow, that's just not like me at all, like meaning in a good way, there'll be an opportunity to to interact with somebody and against my natural behaviors, you know, it's like I'll be very kind or do something. Just you'll, you'll see God's spirit, you know, kind of driving your actions in that moment. And there will be some fruit that comes from that. And when you see things like that, I, you know, again, I want people to be encouraged by that because that's why Jesus tells us that we'll bear fruit. He doesn't want it to be a surprise to us. He wants us to know that that's a sign that his life is in us when we bear fruit. And part of his of the light being in us is that the the unfruitful parts will be exposed and we can see them for what they are and we can turn away from them. So verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we're being called to wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so in, in chapters four and five, you'll notice we talked about this in the last episode. And then again, in this episode, it's about walking. So you've got two different options on how to walk. You walk in a manner worthy of the calling, or you walk as the Gentiles do, and darkness just satisfying your own desires. And so he's calling you, you know, walk not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil, right? This world is broken. It's fallen. If you give your whole life to this life with with the idea that there's nothing more, it's just consumed in brokenness. So make the best use of your time, recognizing that there's something bigger beyond this. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so it's calling you to remember, what is the will of the Lord? Well, it talked about that and pretty pretty elaborately in chapter one, mm-hmm. the will of the Lord is to call you to himself, to be in relationship with you, to adopt you as sons and daughters, to, to give you every spiritual blessing, to seat you in the heavenly realms. So he's saying, understand what the will of the Lord is. What is his design for your life? And walk after it. Everything else is foolish. And like we talked about last week, it's it's a mind of futility. It's there's and you know nothing's going to come from it. You know that the grave will steal everything you've lived for. Mm-hmm. All of your relationships, your money, your wealth, your reputation, power, all of it is going to be taken away from you. And unless you have Christ who has defeated the grave, all of it is futility. So choose wisely. Verse 18 kind of stands by itself for a second here and do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sam. <laughs> so this verse, it's it's super instructive, and it gets to the heart of what we're talking about. Because, so you know, if you get drunk with wine, it's flash in the pan, and then it's over. But if you're filled with the Spirit, that is something that goes on forever. And so, I made a list if if I'm allowed 
of opposites here. <laughs> well, and it is your podcast. You're allowed. Yes. So here we go. For starters, you don't get drunk by taking a sip or two, right? So if if you're looking to be filled with the spirit, the, so the counter of that is you imbibe deeply. You take a lot of the spirit in. You feast upon him. You just you want more of him. You dive into the scriptures. You meditate on him, and that's how you get filled with the spirit. A drunk person is identified by the way he walks, right? Right. <laughs> you know, stumbling around. Or, or lack thereof, yes. Yeah, right. Or his speech. Or it's, lack thereof. Yes. Right. <laughs> and Christians are to be known by their walk and their speech. Huh. Drunkenness brings momentary peace, right? If you had a really rough day, you're really stressed out, you know, you, you want to go and get drunk because it's going to take your mind off of reality. But the spirit does the it, it brings you peace by focusing beyond the temporal and fixing your mind on the permanent and huh. eternal reality. So it's not trying to escape reality. It's driving you deeper into reality. Hmm. Drunkenness deadens your inhibitions and your fears of shame. And you call it liquid courage. It's, it's artificial. Like, here's a sad fact about Sam. <laughs> the first girl that I ever asked out on a date without being drunk first, apart from like middle school, was my wife. I needed the liquid courage, right? So drunkenness deadens your inhibitions, but the spirit brings you courage because it secures your identity in something that can't be taken away. You're, not, you're never worried about being rejected by God because you're sealed in him. Drunkenness casts off inhibitions, which lead to debauchery and shame. But the spirit casts off inhibitions, empowering you to walk in righteousness no matter what other people think. Drunkenness makes you vulnerable, right? You get the... I love you, man. <laughs> but the, Sometimes that feels good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but the Spirit calls you to, to use your words to build up and express love. Like so, so in the church, that's empowered. Drunkenness leaves you the next morning exhausted and ashamed and hungover. But the Spirit brings rejuvenation. It brings you not shame, but freedom from shame. It brings you joy in the morning. Everything is made new. Mercy's new every morning. It's, it's this beautiful thing. And if you drink enough alcohol, it will destroy your life and it will lead you to the grave. Mm-hmm. But you can drink as much of the Spirit as you like. And it's going to lead you to a truly blessed life. And so when Paul offers you these two metaphors, one being drunk on wine and the other one essentially being drunk in the spirit, it really is the whole point of this conversation. Stop chasing something that's going to satisfy you for just a moment and then leave you in shame. Mm -hmm. Stop chasing after all that stuff that just leaves you hollow. Mm -hmm. You can take as much of the Spirit, and He's freely available, and He's always there, and you can never exhaust Him. And what's He going to do with your life? You know it. He's going to make it beautiful. At Pentecost, they said, hey, these men are drunk. And Peter stood up and said, hey, yeah. don't, these men are not drunk with wine. He's just, it's early yet. Yeah. You know, he's like, it's, it's, it's too early for everyone to be drunk here. So the, that, uh, that being filled with the spirit and that, you know, I mean, there were people that looked at him and said, they're drunk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that same. But there was such a, such a joy. It's such like, a joy. And, and, and that culture at that time, mm-hmm. let's just say that the Jewish culture was pretty uptight. At, mm-hmm. the, at that time. And these were people who were praising God. Yeah. They literally were like dancing yeah, all over. Cool. And so their behavior was so extreme in their joyfulness that the people watching said, they're drunk. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's <laughs> kind of funny. When I was in college and shortly thereafter, I used to go to this karaoke bar. Sure. And there was one prerequisite to get Sam to sing. And that was a lot of alcohol. Okay. But I can go into a church I'll sing my heart out. Yeah. I'm not ashamed of that. Yeah. 
that's really good, honestly, because I've heard this verse taught a lot of times where the emphasis is don't drink. And that's not the point. The point of the verse isn't don't drink, although that's there. Don't be drunk. That's there. The point of the verse is be filled with the Spirit in the same way. Mm -hmm. Be that full of the Spirit. Be that unshackled you know you, you're being the spirit is setting you free you mm-hmm. know that kind of thing so so all the things that you're looking for to be satisfied in wine for a moment are available to you in the spirit forever yeah so verse 19 says as we come to the the end of the passage we're doing today verse 19 says addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to god the father in the name of our lord jesus christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the first thing I have to say here is that obviously by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, he's not saying that we're only supposed to quote scripture to each other. I mean, that's obviously, let's not be overly (laughs) over. We don't want to be overly literal here. So, uh, but I think that he is talking about the fact that, um, that it kind of goes back to what he said in, in chapter four, where he says, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only those things which are good to building up as fits the occasion. He's kind of saying the same thing here now, which is the things that you say to one another, they should be encouraging and strengthening each other. They should be building each other up. And where you find that is you find that in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Mm-hmm. And I love this idea. He says, you know, you're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because usually when you think of it, you're, we're singing to the Lord. Well, yes, but we're also addressing one another. We're coming together and we are getting each other excited about the truths of the gospel. So if I come in and I'm spiritually dry, but I see everyone around me rejoicing in what God has done for them and praise, it, it draws me in. I can't help it. And before you know it, I'm making melody of the Lord in my own heart. And I'm, I'm reminded of all that I have to be thankful for, which is, there it is again in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is, again, calling you to come together and to be filled with the Spirit, to find your satisfaction in Him. Don't chase after all the ways that the world has to offer, but come in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, just overflowing with abundant worship. Your heart is just so satisfied that you're singing and making melody with joy to the Lord in your hearts. And so this abundance of thanksgiving and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're coming together to serve each other's needs and to point each other to Christ in reverence for him, but out of love for one another. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It is. And it's, I do think that, um, that again, although I was kind of say, Hey, this is not, you're not supposed to be speaking to each other, just, you know, reading scripture to each other and so forth. But, one of the cool things about becoming more familiar with the word of God is that you're able to call back things to, mm-hmm. to memory and to say, Hey, like, you know, like it says in Psalms and you, you could quote or be when Peter wrote this or Paul wrote that or whatever, uh, or you could something from Genesis. I'm sure um, <laughs> <laughs> me, it'll be Romans. You, it's going to be Genesis. But I resisted the urge when you were quoting Paul earlier about that, which I don't to like launch into Romans seven and, <laughs> You know, start talking about. I, I knew that was happening. Actually, in, in my head, I was in Romans seven. You know, hearing. The, um, but the point it's is, bring that out the ruler for your knuckles. I <laughs> am not. I'm not. But it is something that that um, familiarity with the Word of God, so that it becomes something that is something you call to mind easily when you are talking to somebody else. I think that that is a that is a gift. It's a valuable thing, and it certainly is part of. It certainly is part of this. It's not necessarily just singing and worshiping that is part of it also but i think it's it is talking about just 
your everyday speech and your everyday conversations with people, that this is something that, um, that the things that you would sing should be the same kinds of things that you would say. You know, you look at any place, I'm, I'm, the, it comes up like a platoon serving in the Marines or the Army. If you have everybody looking out for themselves, the whole platoon and everybody individually is weaker. Mm-hmm. But when they come together, if they have this, this notion that, you know, my brother in the trench, I lift him up above my needs. The needs of my platoon are above my own. Mm-hmm. Every, it's not only strengthens the platoon, but it strengthens everybody individually in, in those trenches. Sure. And so, like, when, when we come together in church and we seek to love and lift each other up, there's this really weird thing that happens in the heart of a believer. When you come and you pour yourself out to love others, you find that you are enriched. You receive spiritual healing. You receive joy. It's it's awesome. And so when you submit to one another, when you serve one another out of reference out of reverence to the Lord, it's a blessing. It fills you up. Hmm. <laughs> and like every other thing that I just want to go here. Like every other thing in Ephesians where he says, you know, you do this because God did it first, you mm-hmm. do this because God did it first. And here in this passage, there's this one of the more wild claims of scripture where we come together and we sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. Do you know what? Do you know why we do that? Because he did it first. Mm. You know, some of my favorite verses in scripture are where it says, you know, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. Or in um, Zephaniah 3.17, which is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, it says this, the Lord your God is with you. A mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Hmm. So while we're singing to the Lord, think about this. The God of the universe who controls all things, who has your fate in his hands, you're not just coming and offering up empty, you know, service here i'm doing this out of obligation you're coming to worship a god that as you're singing to him is rejoicing with singing right back over you Mm -hmm. so we love because he he loved we serve because he served we forgive because he forgave we sing to him because he sings over us Mm -hmm. that's awesome Well, we'll let that stand as our last word here on the first half of Ephesians chapter 5. We encourage you all to uh, keep up with the message series, One Body, One Mission, as well as these podcasts. You can get all of that through our smartphone app or at our website, riovistachurch.com. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, things you'd like to communicate with us, you can send us email. That email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. Um, And Sam and I will be back with the latter half of Ephesians chapter 5 next week, and we'll see you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.